Good evening, everyone. My name's Josh, one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. Uh, I want to ask, have you ever had a what-do-I-do-now kind of moment? Uh, before I got involved in full-time paid ministry, I used to be a personal trainer. Uh, you might not believe it. I don't, like, I don't have a lot of muscles, but, but I was, I promise. And this is a photo of me, uh, a baby-faced assassin eight or nine years ago. We might get there at some point. If it comes up, it's there. That's me. Um, now, I wanted to be a personal trainer for quite a long time before I got there. I was really excited to be part of the crew. Uh, I remember uh, going to a group interview at the place where I really wanted to work. There was like 20 other people. Group interviews are really strange, uh, but it was a good time. They told us about how great the job would be, how your life would be made better, and you'll be this kind of person and influencing people. It would be great. I really wanted to be a personal trainer, and, uh, and eventually I did get the job, and I still remember exactly where I was about 10 years ago when they, when they gave me the job. I remember being this excitement. I was part of the, the community. I got my shirt, I got my badge, and I turned up for my first four-hour shift, and they said, okay, off you go, and I thought, what do, I, what do I actually do now? I guess, do I go around and start yelling at people? Do I need to Google some inspirational quotes and start showing them the people? you know, clean some of the travel. I didn't really know what I was meant to be doing. Have you ever felt a little bit like that as a Christian? You've heard the good news of Jesus, you put your trust in him and you started coming to church, but now what? What do you do? What's expected of you? Does it really matter? We've been looking at the first half of Ephesians, Kieran's been saying, and it's been really good. It's been telling us about the great news of Jesus, how good it is to put your trust in him. Every benefit and blessing of Christ comes through him. We'll look at a bit more at that in a second. But now in the second half, Paul turns to thinking about, what do we do now? So what? And the answer is going to be in two parts in this passage, okay? So let's look at the first part, point one. We're called to walk in unity. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Have your Bibles open there. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy of your calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, the thing for you to do is walk worthy of your calling. That's what the rest of Ephesians is about. This is kind of the, the topic sentence for everything that's going to come in the next three chapters. And tonight we'll see a specific aspect of what it means to walk worthy. And before we get too far, what does it actually mean to walk worthy? Is it a particular walking style so that when you see a Christian going down the street, you can say, you're walking worthy, man. That's how you're meant to be walking. No, to walk worthy is to live out and live up to the reality that's true about you. Make visible an invisible fact. Learn to be what you are. That's what it means to walk worthy. Live out the reality that's true about you. What is that reality? What is it that's true about you? Well, Paul calls it our calling. Walk worthy of your calling. What's that? Uh, Christians can often use the word calling in different ways. Sometimes we, we talk about it uh, as you know, called to a job or we're called to something else. Um, sometimes we say things like, I feel called to mission. Or I feel called to a particular kind of ministry. Uh, or we say I feel called to a particular kind of job. Interestingly, we often say things like we're called to being a doctor, or a lawyer, or a musician. Uh, if you talk to labourers, garbos, or hairdressers, they don't often talk about my job as a calling. What's going on there? How does the Bible use the word calling? Well, almost every time the Bible talks about calling, it talks about the call to become a Christian. 
And that's what Paul means here. Uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 has largely been telling us about the calling. What is the calling for those who follow Jesus? So chapter 1, verse 10, we see that God's ultimate plan is to unite all things in Jesus. That's where everything's headed. How's he doing that? How are all things being united in Jesus? Well, he's calling people to oneness. In the first half of chapter 2, we see that God is bringing people from death to life by making us one with Jesus. We can receive every benefit and blessing of Christ because we're made one with him. Then the second half of chapter 2, we're made one with each other. Uh, The barriers that divided Jews and Gentiles, that that divide any Christians, are brought down in Jesus. So we can be one together, united to Jesus, united to each other. Our calling is a call to oneness, a call to oneness with God and oneness with each other. Uh, If you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus and you're here, it's great that you're here. This is the thing for you to hear tonight. You need to consider that you might be here because God is calling you. He desperately wants you to experience all of the blessings he's talked about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Have a read of them. See how good they are. He wants to call you to be part of that. Are you open? Are you open to finding out more, to hearing that call? We'd love to help you figure it out. Come back to church next week. Talk to some people after church. We'd love to have that conversation with you. God's called us to oneness and oneness with each other. And Paul says, walk worthy of that calling. Live out the reality of oneness because that's who you are. Walk worthy of your calling. Paul goes on to talk about it in a bit more detail. How do you walk worthy of your calling? Well, verse 2. We're to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing in love. Now, why is that the next thing he says? He says, walk worthy, therefore be humble. He could have said anything, but he gives us these four traits. How does verse 1 and verse 2 connect? Well, it's because these four characteristics enable us to live out the goal which Paul makes explicit in verse 3. See, to walk worthy of our calling is, specifically verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We've been united to each other, made one, so work hard to make visible that unity. And the key to living out unity is humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with others in love. See, being arrogant, being harsh, being easily agitated, unforgiving breaks people apart very easily. Put an arrogant person or a harsh person in a group and you'll see how quickly unity can be destroyed. See, verse 2 are all characteristics that are concerned with putting others ahead of yourself. That's the key to living out unity. Not having a bunch of people who are looking out for their own interests, making sure that I get served, making sure I get fed and loved as I deserve, but having people who will give up their rights who are most concerned that other people are served and fed and loved. When church is filled with people like that, unity, it'll be easy. How are you going? With humility, with bearing with others in love. Are you easily frustrated? Do you feel the need to express your displeasure at all the things you don't like at church? There's a place for that. But how do we cultivate an attitude where we're more concerned about the interests of others 
even if it means a cost to myself? What would that look like for you? How could you help us be united? I take it that Paul has to spell these things out because they're not easy to do. They're not things that come naturally. You might think that church should be about sitting in a circle, holding hands, making daisy chains, looking deep into each other's eyes and just saying, I love you, I love you, and I love you. When you're new to a church, it can feel a little bit like that. You can think, this is the most perfect place. Just give it time. Those honeymoon glasses will come off as you get to know us a little bit better. Now, I reckon this is a great church, right? But the people here aren't perfect. See, to say that you're going to have to bear with others means that the person sitting next to you is someone you will have to bear with. They're a sinner. You might turn to the person and go, yeah, that sounds about right. They're probably looking at you thinking, yeah, that sounds about right too. Church is beautiful. It's the means by which God shows his power, his wisdom and love to the universe. It's an incredible thing. But it's also full of people who will disappoint you, who will hurt you, annoy you, who will be different to you, and you'll have to bear with them. I've heard someone talk about the, the two to three pattern, uh, two to three year pattern of church. They reckon that people often come to a new church and you love it, right? It's like you've got those honeymoon glasses on. Everything's perfect. You can't see any of the, anything bad. But after about a year, those glasses start to come off and you start to see things you didn't see before. Uh, things aren't perfect. People start to frustrate you a little bit. Uh, one of the leaders lets you down in some way. The people are, are maybe a little bit clicky. You get over the same people preaching on their same hobby horse every week. You start to get a little bit disillusioned with church, but you, you try to stick it out. But after two years, the people haven't changed. Nothing's really improved. And you think, maybe I'll start looking for another church. And then when you do start at a new church, everything seems way better. You've got your honeymoon glasses on and it kind of validates the fact that you moved. That old church, that was lame. This is where it's at. But after a couple of years, you start to see things as they really are again. And well, that church, it has some of the same problems, doesn't it? The thing is, every church has its clicks, right? Every church will let you down at times. It's full of sinners. Of course it will. When you start finding church and the people hard... When you realise that this group of people aren't the people you might necessarily choose to be best friends with, the answer isn't to change church. The answer is, bear with one another in love and recognise that people are probably having to bear with you too. So unity can be hard, we've got to work at it, but Paul says, live it out. That is how we walk worthy of our calling. Live out the unity that God has called us to. But does that mean we should strive for unity at any cost? Are there things that should lead us to not having unity with some people? Well, verse 4, Paul tells us it's not unity at any cost. Our expression of unity comes when we're united in these foundational truths. Have a look at verse 4. It's when we share in the one spirit, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all. Our unity comes from being united in these things. We're not to go chasing unity if we're not founded, united in these foundational things. So how do we live if we follow Jesus? What do we do now? Well, point one, we're called to walk in unity as an expression of our oneness. 
But does that mean we're all called to be exactly the same? Do we totally lose our individuality? Are we all meant to be the same? And does unity, does it have any kind of goal or direction? Are we aiming for something? Or are we just trying to look around at what we have and desperately hold on to it and hope that we don't lose any of it? The next section answers those two questions. Does unity mean uniformity? And does unity have a goal? Point two, we're called to serve in diversity for collective maturity. We're called to serve in diversity for collective maturity. Have a look at verse 7. Open that up. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul's not talking about salvation grace, like we've been given different amounts of salvation. He's saying that by his grace, each of us has been given different gifts. We're all different. God actually made it that way. And he says every person has a gift that's needed in church. Even if you feel like you have nothing to offer, Jesus says you do. He's given a gift to each one of us. Paul then quotes this Old Testament passage, and the point is that every gift is given by the ascended Christ. There's no point bragging about gifts. You didn't do anything. Jesus gave it to you. Paul quotes Psalm 68, which is a psalm, we read it, that pictures God ruling in victory. And he's leading this triumphant procession with captives in his wake, ascending Mount Zion to establish his sanctuary, the place where he will dwell. Uh, Back in the day when your army kind of went out and they won a victory, you'd come home and there'd be a triumphant procession through the streets. And at the end of your procession, you'd have kind of all your army. And at the back, you'd have all the captives, all the booty and the spoil from your victory. And you'd bring it back. And the king would distribute to his people a bunch of the booty and spoils as part of the victory. In Ephesians, Paul is saying that Jesus, in his death, resurrection and ascension, won a great victory. And out of the spoils of his victory, he gives gifts to people. He gives gifts to every individual person, but he also gives people as a gift to his church. And that's what we see in verse 11. Have a look. He gave, that's Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Jesus gives people as gifts to his church. And he highlights four particular people gifts. Uh, It looks like there's five, but there's actually four. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, or or pastor teachers. The two last things are one person. You might see a footnote in the bottom of your Bible that puts them together. Uh, It's helpful to recognise that those two things go together. It's not that there's, you know, pastors and shepherds who who deal the meal rosters and they kind of have tissues on their shoulders so you can cry on them. And then there's this other group of people who who teach God's word and then just don't care about you. No, the image is of a shepherd who protects his flock, who keeps them from danger and leads them in the right direction, primarily by teaching the word. That's the role of the pastor-teacher, a gift given by Jesus to the church. One of the implications of this is that if you want to consider pursuing becoming a pastor teacher, you are in yourself a gift. A bit weird, but for me it means that I need to recognise that I am for you. I've been given for you. You own me. My life isn't about doing what I want. My life is for you. That's how I'm meant to think about myself. That's a challenge for me. 
Uh, just quickly, since ministers seem to be key to the church, could I just get the ministers in the room to put their hands up, just so everyone knows who they are? If you're a minister, chuck your hands up. Okay, helpful. Why are these four gifts highlighted? Four people gifts. Because this obviously isn't a list of all the gifts. It's that these people have a special role because they're foundationally all about teaching the word. Having people teach the word is foundational for God's people. Paul moves on, verse 12, and shows us what the outcome of this word teaching ministry is meant to be. Have a look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. The role of the word teachers is to equip you for ministry, for service. That's really significant to get. The role of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers is to equip, equip every person in this room for ministry, for service. There's some really big implications when you start to get this. The first thing it means that it's not just the minister's job to do ministry. Ministry is the job of every person in this room. The role of the pastor teacher is to equip you. You're not paying the pastor teacher to do ministry so that you don't have to. You are all the ministers of Wild Street Church. Did you know that? It starts to change things when you realise that. A great thing about this church is that lots of people in this room get it. And you can tell because lots of people serve. So let me try this again. Could all the ministers in the room just put your hand up so we all know who the ministers are? That's right. There should be a lot. Should be everyone. Nice. You're all the ministers of Wild Street. Second implication is that the equipping is primarily done through the word. It's not about constant training days where we teach you, here's the five techniques to get your handshake perfect so you can welcome people to church really well. You are primarily equipped for ministry by the teaching of the word. That's really significant. Okay. So you're equipped for ministry through the word, but for what reason? Here's a point, verse 12. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You're equipped by the word to serve others in order to build them up towards unity and maturity. Do you see the flow of the passage? We're back to the beginning. God has called us to oneness. And so he calls on us now to live a life where our oneness is expressed visibly. And he does that by equipping us through the work to do works of service so that we can build each other up in order to become the mature and united body of Christ that God intends for us to be. Together working to grow deep roots in the truths of the faith that unite us. Do you see the picture? It's beautiful. Don't you want to be part of a church like that? Well, having just talked about the goal of maturity, Paul goes on to tell us why maturity is part of the important goal. Verse 14, have a look. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Maturity, being grown up in our faith and having deep roots in it, is key because if you don't have deep roots, you can easily get swept away from the foundational truths that unite us. Uh, these truths are what unite us, and you've got to hold on to them. Maturity is key for that. Growing maturity will mean that we hold fast 
to those truths. We won't be tossed to and fro every time we look at a YouTube video that teaches us something different or an article that we read online. We need to be mature if we're going to attain unity. And so instead of being tossed around by different teachings, Paul says, verse 15, we're each to speak the truth in love. Again, working together to build up the body. Maturity is a team sport. You can't be mature as a Christian on your own. We need each other. In light of all that, there's at least one implication and one question that I think comes up. The implication is, every person here is really valuable to our church. There's no place for feeling like, it doesn't really matter if I don't come. It doesn't matter if I don't serve. Because we all miss out. Our maturity and our unity will be worse off without you. Without your presence and without your service. We need you. I reckon we can sometimes look around and think, things are going pretty well. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of need for me. That's totally wrong. Getting involved deeply in serving is the best thing for you and for the rest of us. We will all grow in maturity and unity more when you're involved. If you follow Jesus, if this is your church, it really matters that you serve. If you're not serving or if you know that you're just doing the bare minimum kind of thing, I don't mean to guilt you. I want you to see your immense value to God and his people. I want you to see and be excited about what God is doing in this place and think, how can I be part of that? Jesus has gifted you. So you can do something. Jesus won a victory so that you can. In fact, so that you can do something. You're called to do something. Something that will build up the rest of the body. That's what God has called you to be and what he's called you to do in this community. If you're hearing this and it's making you want to talk about starting to serve or hear about ways you could serve, uh, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Write something on your Connect card. I'd love to have that conversation with you. That's the implication. Your service is valuable for everyone here. But the question that comes up from this stuff, I think, is, is unity something that we have, which we're meant to maintain, which says at the start, verse 1, or is it, verse 13, something that we're working towards to attain? Do you see how it's talked about differently in the same passage? The answer is yes. It's both. Unity is something that we have and it's something we're working towards. It's part of the now but not yet. See, yes, in Christ we are one. But we still haven't reached the full expression of it yet. We're still growing up into the fullness of Christ. So it's something that we have in Christ now. So live in humility gentleness and patience and bear with others in love in order to make visible the unity we have in Christ. But it's also something we're working towards and we won't fully experience until heaven. So be equipped by the word and give yourself to serving the body so that we might all be built up to attain the unity and the maturity in Christ that God wants for us. See how it works? So... You've put your trust in Jesus. You've been brought into God's family, saved by grace. It's awesome. But what do you do now? Does it matter? It absolutely matters. You've been called to walk in unity, to serve in your diversity for the maturity of the body until we are all fully united in Christ. How about I pray that we can do that? Father, we are blown away by our calling. 
We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are brought into the family. We are given your spirit. Father, you've given us all these things even though we deserve none of it. Father, help us to walk worthy of our calling. Help us to live out the oneness that we have in Christ. Grow us in humility, patience, bearing with others in love. Father, thank you that you've given each one of us a gift. May we use our gifts. May we be committed to serving deeply for the good of your people. For that is what you've called us to do. Thank you that we are valuable. Help us to be valuable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.